just nature, nothing else. It's like being naked. It's a, uh, you are standing, looking around saying, what now? It was a fantastic feeling. I couldn't believe I met a woman that shared that feeling with me. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wild Dispatch. I'm Robin and I'm back with more skills and stories from the wild. Today is the day we share the third and final section of Isla's trilogy. This episode we're rolling up our sleeves and really getting into the homestead building, county fair beating part of this particular story sandwich. If you missed the previous episodes then I suggest you go back and start the adventure from the beginning. You don't want to miss it. Now it's time for me to stop waffling and get on with the episode. Welcome to the Wild Dispatch! Isla, welcome back to the Wild Dispatch. Well, thank you. Well, I should say, thanks for having me again. It's probably the more appropriate thing to say. Well, thanks for coming down, and I look forward to uh, our conversation and to share some food. Yes, of course, and I see another amazing spread here, which looks absolutely delicious, and I cannot wait to tuck into that. Um, I guess before we start uh, nibbling, I should probably do a little bit of a recap. So this is going to be uh, a continuation of our uh, of our chat, going through your story, um, from actually where you began in Denmark and uh, like your <laughs> desires to follow the caveman lifestyle from a young age and then your travels through Europe and America and then discovering all kinds of things along those travels um, from going down and fishing on the coasts of Mexico and even further south and then also you know finding Viking vessel randomly in a barn which kind of started off your whole wonder of boat building and that kind of process which through a various series of steps brings us to this moment now where you settled into a homesteading lifestyle in Elk which is where we are actually sat now in your in your farm so I mean obviously we're going to tuck into some delicious food now but yeah, you know what? Let's let's eat. Let's talk about the food first. I think that makes sense. Very well. Uh, uh, a lot of these things here is really a combination of uh, everything I've been doing up until now, because uh, a lot of it comes from the garden here. A lot of it comes from the ocean. Uh, most of it is uh, from right here. There are some exceptions, of course, but they're also provided by other people with whom I have an exchange program that is very loose. I have fish, they have other things that I don't have. Together, we supplement each other, and it's present here right in this tray full of food. Through a wonderful series of gifts. Yeah. <laughs> to one another. Indeed. <laughs> um, there's some traditional Danish food in here, and one of them is the herring, and in a meal uh, such as this, a lunch meal, we would start with herring. Okay. Should we start with the herring? Let's start with herring. It Let's start good. with the herring. So, 
I'm going to take a little video of, of this as well, just so people can see if they... Uh... Yeah, so I'm just going to like bring out the ingredients for a successful herring snack. Okay. And I'm just going to take the lid off here, and here we have a pickled herring. Okay. And uh, egg. And we have the right type of bread. It's a very humble... What bread is that? It's a it's a blackish um, rye bread, all rye. Looks delicious. And then we have. Um, I haven't seen anything like that in a while since being in my travels in Europe myself. That looks fantastic. Yeah, it is a really good bread. It's uh, made by people down in Point Arena. Mm. And then we have some duck fat. Duck fat. Yeah, it should be pig fat or pork fat, but it's okay. Uh, it's very hard to get good pork fat anywhere here in the United States. But you can. Uh, duck fat is uh, a byproduct of slow cooking a duck. You get a lot of runoff and it's full of uh, the aromas of uh, whatever herbs and and other vegetables that you cook together with the duck so it's full of stuff as you can see and it does, doesn't just taste of duck it tastes of everything that went into cooking that yeah, duck fantastic. and it's really delicious oh it sounds good so let's see what we have here we have duck fat we have herring we have egg and we have pickled beet which is a must and that is according to my mother <laughs> we smear some duck fat on the bread. We smear duck fat on the bread. Oh, this looks good. Oh, it smells good. Yeah, it's full of uh, the goodness of the cooked duck. And then we fish a couple of filet of herring out of the brine here. And we have copious amounts of uh, raw onion okay. with it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to load this up. Let me top it off. It with smells delicious. With some hard-boiled egg. And copious amounts of onion. Yes. Okay, tick. And we finish off with a couple slices of pickled beet. Also from the garden. Yes, indeed. Where are the eggs from? Did you say? The eggs, uh, that's one of the things that I, where I had to succumb and go to the supermarket because oh. my friend Jane, who has supplied me with eggs for many, many years, got plundered by a bear uh, earlier this year oh. that, who demolished her uh, chicken coop and killed half the chickens. She fixed it. He came back two days later and finished the job and she gave up. Understandable. The end of an era. If a bear has set its heart on eating chickens in that location, you can be for sure he's going to be checking regularly. Oh. Now you may eat with your hands if you wish. Okay, but, no, it's a knife and fork situation. Okay. But I was uh, raised with a knife and fork. <laughs> As was I. Mm. Wow. Mm. That is fantastic. Mm.
Such a great combination of flavors. And none of them too overpowering. They're all big. Mm. That's why they don't overpower each other. I had a conversation with a friend the other day about food. She lives alone, as do I. My wife passed away recently. We did a lot of food together. And now I make food for myself. My friend said, I don't feel like cooking for myself. It's too much work. I don't feel I've deserved it. I, I just I just eat to maintain my energy level. I do not. To me, it's a, it's a way of, of connecting with all the other aspects of my life. The food is the end station of everything I do. It's as if everything I do, all the energies, all the purposes, whether I have a job, whether I get paid or not, you know, whether I'm on my wages or whether I'm going out and, and working in the garden, it all comes down to one thing, and it is I want to put food on the table that I really desire. Mm. And the more effort I put into the putting that food on the table, the more I desire it. And if I if I if I just snack or mindlessly putting food in my mouth, then it loses, a, it loses meaning. The further I get away from it, it loses meaning. The more automa automated or processed the food is, the less value does it have to me spiritually, mentally, emotionally. This, this little sandwich we ate here right now has a lot of meaning. And I invoke my mother a couple of times. Yeah, And I think about my mother a lot because she was a fantastic cook and she laid the groundwork for my respect for food and my reverence for the act of eating and, and tasting. It's one of the most important passions and, and drives we have as humans, as animals, the act of eating. And I never wanted to make it be something secondary. I wanted it to be something that I put effort into it, and I enjoy with effort. It's, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's, it's uh, admirable <laughs> to maintain that kind of focus, you know, the focus on the meaning of, well, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? Like I think in the, in the modern way people live their lives, it's easy to, and it's different for everyone, you know, but it's easy to find your focus become filtered into many different directions and yeah so it's it's really refreshing to hear that you have such a holistic approach to yeah to I, what I enjoy, you put in your body i enjoy uh, the process and i enjoy the act of eating uh it's a hobby yeah. Ingesting food. <laughs> it's it's a, yeah, a helpful hobby for survival. <laughs> but also enjoyment. Exactly. That's the point. Yeah. So are we should we have another one of these? Because I can't stop thinking about eating the next half of this sandwich. <laughs> Is that okay? Don't hold back. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Um, but uh, the, the drive to that passion is something that has always been in the back of my mind. 
And I've always explored the world with that in mind, with always trying to keep the focus of my life's activity, my work, my hobbies, the thing I do, the things I do in focus for how does it fit in with my connection with nature, with my utilization of nature, if you will. You know, what is my relationship with nature? Is it a romantic relationship? Is it a utilitarian relationship? Do I just want to go out and use, find, use, ingest, uh, cut down trees for timber, go out and find mushrooms because they taste good, or is it something deeper than that? I've always looked at the world in that respect. I also look, look at my actions and see how do they fit in with that worldview. And one of the things that happened early on here in California when I was first traveling from San Francisco to British Columbia where I was going to meet up with a friend at the uh, University of uh, BC in Vancouver was I traveled up Highway 1 yeah. hitchhiking and getting interrupted with rain. And Highway 1, sorry to interrupt, that is the main highway, I'm sure everybody knows this, but it's the main highway that runs the whole way along the coast of, the west coast of, of uh, California and America, or is it just California? California. Okay, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's, if it's also called Highway 1 in Oregon and Washington. It might. It probably is. Just conversely, there's another Highway 1 back east that goes all the way down to Key West. Oh, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, there is. <laughs> but... Um, one of the things that happened on my travel was that I stopped in at a place in Elk, uh, a bar, the Oasis. It was a random stop. I had hitched a ride. I was, uh, we stopped in because, because it was uh, time to take a break. Yeah. And it was evening and we walk into the bar. Um, and there on the wall was a picture of a fisherman, Charlie Li Fu. He was a Chinese immigrant, worked in the lumber industry, uh, had a working accident, became a barber and a banker and a fisherman. Fished from a hand-built dory, long hand-built oars. A picture was taken of him and his fishing partner on the beach, on a beach in Elk standing next to the dory with an enormous amount of fish for, in front of them. How many fish? Like, how many pounds would you guess? A mountain of fish. <laughs> Maybe 200, 300 pounds of fish. They were all caught with a hand-wind, not rod and reel, hand-wind only. They did, their equipment was very spartan, a jug of water, hand-wind, and then this mountain of fish, and then two very cool-looking dudes. I'm sure with smiles on their faces. One of them was Charlie Li Fu. He was legend around here, and when I saw that picture, it so fit into everything I wanted to be. And when I saw that picture, I said, I want to be that. And it was just a random thought, and it was just like I was pouring my heart into it, and then it goes away, it disappears. It kind of gets f filed into the, my, my consciousness and, uh, you know, as sitting there and never forgotten, but outside of the realm of what's possible. Yes. 
except I made it possible. By a series of coincidence, maybe it's chance, maybe it's luck. People say you are, you know, you, luck is something you have to work hard for. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't know, there was a time when I believed in fate as some kind of a, a quasi-divine uh, force of nature because I was so lucky it couldn't possibly be all coincidence, right? There yeah. is a meaning with this. Of course, it's all nonsense, but nonetheless, <laughs> I ended up being those people in that picture. Yeah, it must be, ah, oh, I mean, an amazing moment as well. It must have been a point, some point along the journey after seeing that amazing photograph, feeling the inspiration that it created in you. How long down the line was it that you were able to realize I have achieved what my wildest dreams and ambitions became when I saw that photograph? Well, along the way, these possibilities opened up that put me one step closer. I can't tell you when the moment was where okay. I could say, this is, this is what I wanted. But I could say many times, this is what I want to happen now, because it's leading in that direction. Yes. So at some point it becomes clear that everything I'm doing from here on out is going to take me in that direction to where I want to be. And so life here in California, when I was a boat building apprentice, a series of things happened. I had finished a boat. I had uh, wrapped up the work. My, my mentor and his family were visiting in uh, their family in Kansas. I was holding down the fort. I had completed a boat. For the first time in my life, I really had done something from A to Z on my own. Mm. Up until then, I'd always answered to other people's schedules. From my childhood and on, it was structure. It was school, it was this, it was work, it was duties. It was what other people had thought out for me. I made the choice of going to teacher's college, yeah, sure. But you end up in a, like a cohort of even age people. There's a curriculum, there's an agenda, here's the books, here's the tests, here's the paper, here's the graduation, very structured. It's all set out, uh, planned for you. You just have to obey, get out of bed in the morning, show off a class and do your homework. Easy, structured, um, I call it the simple life. Mm -hmm. Then I end up in a situation where I can choose for myself. Being on the road in California set me free. It unmoored me from the straight and the narrow that uh, a life in the school system has to afford. Here, traveling, I didn't answer to anything but what was in front of me and building a boat came in front of me the chance to build a boat from the bottom up understanding the process all the way from a to z with a generous and talented mentor boat builder mm -hmm. helped me along the way but otherwise taking a hands-off approach and allowing me to discover my own mistakes and correct them and learn I guess that's a faster way to learn, really, isn't it? Actually, the sign of a good teacher is someone who will 
know when to guide you and know when to let you make your own mistakes. Yeah. Mistakes are necessary uh, learning tools. Yeah. Effective. Yeah. <laughs> so, while this was happening, and you were in this, uh, dare I say, like a love affair with an idea of how to chase a fishing lifestyle, how was the rest of your life developing in, in a kind of uh, synchronized way with that? You know, because you're living a few miles inland, up, up in the hills, above Elk, California, you are homesteading with your wife, although she wasn't your wife at the time. No, that's right. So well, I was living in Wallala at the premises of uh, the boat builder. Okay, you were still there. And I had uh, completed this boat. Um, it was one day in April 1983. Uh, it was Saturday. I took the car. I had car keys. I had a, had a van that I had access to. I took the car to Point Arena which was about 15 miles away, <clears throat> to a bar there, the sign of the whale. And um, there was a live band. It was a very jovial place. It was hopping. Yeah, so I'm at the bar at the sign of the whale in Point Arena, and it's a loud affair, and there's dancing on the floor, and... In files about four young women that made makes everybody's head turn, including mine. And I catch sight of uh, one of them, exchange glances, and uh, what took place in the rest of that evening was just uh, magnetism. And uh, her name was Karen Mathis. She was a chef at an inn in Elk. And um, we started a romance that night. And over the next several m weeks, we saw each other frequently. Um, she lit my heart on fire. And I think I lit her heart on fire too. She was a little uh, careful having just gone through a not very amicable breakup with an ex-husband. Mm. But I was persistent. <laughs> and at the end of uh, that summer, or at the end of July, August, I had finished boat number two. I'd built two boats simultaneously, and I'd been with the boat builder now for about nine months. And that's a gestation period. It's a kind of a natural cutoff time. Uh, that's what I tell myself because I just decided it's time to leave. And Karen and I went on a long road trip in her car. She was driving a Mazda RX-7 uh, hot rod, uh, rotary engine, Japanese uh, station wagon. I put my backpack in the back of a station wagon and we set out on the Great American Road. Highway one all the way north and inland and down the deserts and we just had a grand old time and she invited me in to her house. Her house was a 
small cabin that she had built recently. She had built it together with a few friends. They started in March and the house was wrapped up uh, in uh, October. Hmm. And um, when I moved in with Karen, it had plastic before the windows. It had one functioning door. Uh, didn't have any uh, wiring or plumbing or any other things of that kind of nature. And, you know, what happened was that I discovered the things that I had forgotten that I wanted. Karen had all these things that I had forgotten that I wanted. No power, no plumbing, no phone. They were things that you had thought previously you do not want those things. I do not want those things. This was like starting at square one. This was uh, starting at the bottom rung and learning to climb the fence where it's highest. This was a, a whole new chance to uh, re-step back into a life that I, I had left off. Um, I hadn't only found love, I had found a whole new life. It was a reset of sorts. It was uh, kind of picking up where my childhood left off, but on my own premises. A little cottage, little cabin in the woods, completely swallowed up by forest, uh, with no plumbing, no power, no phone, just nature, nothing else. It's like being naked. It's a, uh, you are standing, looking around saying, what now? It was a fantastic feeling. I couldn't believe I met a woman that shared that feeling with me. Yeah. So what was the first step when you, with the question, what now? What was the thing that took first priority? Well, that first winter together it became very clear that there was too many trees. Okay, why? Because when you are engulfed in forest and it's wet outside, we got a lot of uh, rain in the winter here. We, we get 50 inches regularly mm. uh, from about October to about April. It becomes very, it becomes very, very damp, uh, cold to the bone. Mm -hmm. Everything gets damp. The house gets damp. Your, your, your clothes are not dry. Everything is full of moisture. It's rainforest. It's redwood forest. Mm. Uh, you find out pretty quickly this is not healthy. We need sun. We need exposure to the sky. So we laid a plan. Uh, we needed a little bit of elbow room, a little bit of space around us. There was a little clearing where the car was parked and then there was a little well and then there was a, a path, footpath into the house. I bought a chainsaw and I started cutting down trees and shrubbery. So I'm assuming at this point there was no space for any kind of vegetable growing, farming of any kind? Nothing. And the soil here is very poor. Redwood forest soil is notoriously acidic and infertile. Very few species can uh, really thrive in, uh, in a forest that's dominated by redwoods. Mm. 
my plan, my urge was to uh, build a shop where I could build a boat. That picture of Li Fu and his fishing pal from the Oasis in Elk was sitting in the back of my head and driving me. And I tell you, I was in a situation here. The year is 1983. I am 28 years old. I have boundless energy. I have all the time in the world. My head is exploding with ideas. And I have dawn to dusk to work, to do it. And so I get up at dawn, you know, put on my clothes, uh, get something really good to eat and go slash the forest. <laughs> Cutting it down. The good wood, uh, the conifers, they were laid down to be milled. The uh, tan oak was laid down to be uh, cut into 18-inch rounds for firewood. Uh, the brush, likewise, was chopped up in 18-inch pieces, up, down to a, the smallest size. I utilized everything. And then, of course, there was the burn piles of uh, the biomass, the twigs and the leaves and, and the, the slash. So we made some burn piles here and there. And otherwise, we laid down the trees in a way where we knew that we could actually like get to them later yes it wasn't just like a, a big messy pile that would rot no that was not the uh, the purpose i borrowed a, a alaska chainsaw mill from one of karen's friends karen's friends were very eager to support her in her endeavor like three or four of her friends helped her build her house and they did it very quickly. And when I came into the picture, these same friends, Karen's social sphere, were very uh, helpful, generous, and eager to help us along in our uh, homesteading. And I think that that is not an unusual way of, uh, of how things are done when you only have primitive means. The idea of a bond raising is an old concept where the, in, the whole community shows up, the timber is pre-cut and uh, people know what they're doing because they've done it before. And in a couple of days, you go from having just timber laying on the ground to uh, the structure of a barn is up and standing. Mm. So this thing about like offering up help to people who are starting from ground zero, that's a, a, a well-known ingrained concept, I think, in, in, in the human mind. And I was very, very happy that I got, I got good advice. I didn't know hardly anything. I was a school teacher. I didn't know how to. I was born and raised on a farm, yes. I had some knowledge about how to use hand tools, yes. But still, things specific to how to deal with Mother Nature around here is still something you had to learn. And I had good mentors. So what were those things? Obviously you said about the heavy rain and I'm guessing strong winds as well could be a bit of an element with the trees all nearby. Yeah, all of the above. I mean, don't go out falling trees when it's blowing, right? And, uh, and cutting down a tree, I mean, you, you got to know what you're doing when you're looking at a tree and say, oh, I'm going to cut down this tree. Well, okay, but you better like observe and read and do it right because otherwise this stuff will kill you if done wrong. 
The world is full of stories about trees killing people. And you don't want that to happen. You got to go about it with your with your mind open and uh, your your senses on full alert. And then you got to listen to people who know better. Did you ever have any close ones with cutting down all these trees? I really don't. I'm very lucky, lucky that way. But I have heard stories and I have friends who were laid up um, because of moments of inattention. Yeah. And I am happy to say that I have all my limbs. I've never suffered any any broken bones on that account. And uh, no, uh, no near misses, no trees falling the wrong way. That's a common occurrence. <laughs> and then we started milling lumber from the trees that we had cut down. Karen and I uh, got the hang of it, got quite good at it, prolific, productive. Um, I started building this shop. I cleared enough space uh, so that I could start mixing cement, laying a, a foundation, um, getting pier uh, brackets set in concrete, milling uh, beams for the floor. I had to get some paying work with local uh, carpenters, contractors, cabinet makers, uh, jobs here and there that could give me some money so I could go out and buy some lumber because I couldn't mill at all. I had to buy some lumber. I had to buy some two by sixes, some two by fours for the walls, for the roof, that kind of things. But all the beams from four by four and up, we milled ourselves. And was there any regulationary stuff at that point with building properties or, you know, or maybe that's a question I shouldn't be asking you. You can ask. We ignored them all. Okay. Completely, 100%. <laughs> there was never any talk about uh, permits or anything. We knew that everything we did was illegal or outside of uh, permits, the permit structure. Illegal. Sure. <laughs> In it was. Commas, yeah. We kind of enjoyed that aspect of, of it. I remember there was one day um, I had a big fir tree laying out here in the structure. I, I wanted an open ceiling here in the structure. I didn't want any posts to interrupt uh, the uh, the room. Mm -hmm. It's not a very big room. It's uh, 24 by 32. I wanted it to be as open as possible. It required a good strong beam to pull the two walls together so that they didn't get pushed out by the roof. Yeah, And so... I remember one morning I set out with the Alaska Mill, Karen and I, and we went out and cut uh, a 6 by 12 out of this uh, dug fir. And it had to be 24, in, 24 feet long. You couldn't go out and buy a 24 feet uh, 6 by 12 dug fir at the lumber yard because it's not standard lumber. Yeah. It has to be special order. But I, I would never go out and buy such a thing, I wanted to cut it myself. So in the morning, we cut, I cut down the tree the, the day before, in the morning we went out and we milled it. In the afternoon, four friends showed up. The walls were standing to this house and then we put it up and here it is. It's this beam that stretches, we're sitting directly under it, stretches from one wall to the other. And it was cut down, green, it was heavy. 
really, really heavy. We had to use some pretty ingenious uh, lifting system to get it up there. But there it is, the 6x12. Huh. Milled and installed in one day. Wow, that is <laughs> that's remarkable. Yeah, that was a sweet feeling. Was there any, I mean, I guess you, you probably knew about this at this time. I know like this is a, a sidestep into woodworking territory, dare I say. But with a beam like that, you have to give it time for it to move. You know, wood after time, when it's like removed from a tree, it will adjust and move. Was that something which you were aware of or it, you know, became an issue later on or was it all fine? It did move a little bit, but I had uh, built notches into the walls where the beam was going to fit. And I wedged the beam in place after it was slipped into the notches, which were a little bit oversized. Okay. There, it was very limited how far that beam could twist. It twisted a little bit, but it couldn't twist a lot. I knew it was going to try and twist, but I didn't allow it to. <laughs> it was captive at that point. Yes, it was. So after a while, uh, I think in the year uh, 87, I mean, this is a slow process. It starts with clearing land, getting a job, accumulating lumber, milling wood, making a foundation. It's called digging. It's called making concrete. It's called clearing brush. All of these things took place at the same time, just day in, day out. It was like fantastic work, the best. And I get a roof on and I get the sides closed in with, uh, with, with top paper. It's a top paper shack basically. And I, I have gotten some siding, but as soon as this place was closed in, I was ready to build a boat. I had in my spare time, racked my brain to put all the knowledge together that Mr. Mobert from the boat shop in Wallala had taught me. Everything I'd learned from building those two boats in the shop, I put into the effort of designing and building my own boat. I've been so lucky during the same years where I was building this shop, it took me a couple of years to get the shop up, to fish in another rowboat that another friend here in Elk had built. This was a standard rowboat. This was a, a Swampscott Dory, which is an East Coast model. It's uh, probably a 100 year old design also. A light version of, uh, of the Banks Dory. Light, yes, but still heavy. Light, yes, but way too heavy for just a couple of people. Yes. Too heavy to pull up up and down on the beach because it was a beached dory mm -hmm. without any help from any winch or any kind of mechanical help. It was very heavy. Yet it was light. It was only like 250 pounds, which is still too much. There was many things wrong with this boat. There was many things right with this boat. No boat is perfect. Every boat is a result of compromise. The wrong compromises in this case. And I got a couple of years of fishing in, in this rowboat, a couple of summers, where I got to observe its strength and its weakness. The size was right, about 20 feet, 20 feet length, five feet in the, in the, over the beam, in the width. Yeah. 
pretty perfect dimension, seaworthy, stable, little clumsy under oars, little slow, little uh, unresponsive in uh, the waves, um, very sensitive to wind. So there was a whole series of things that were right, there was a whole series of things that were not right. And I tried to pay attention to when we're sitting out there fishing, thinking, looking, observing, what should be done differently. So by the time this shop was closed in, I'd made these considerations. I'd made some drawings. I'd found some information, some books, some of the big brains of uh, wooden boat building from back in time, who had thought everything through. And I absorbed all their knowledge so that I could do the right decisions when I stand in front of a problem that has to be solved. Building a boat that has never been built before. A type, a whole new type, that I call the dog hole dory. It's called a dog hole dory because the little coves here on this coast uh, that are sprinkled up and down the coast of California all the way up to BC basically Little coves carved out, carved out by the relentless surf of the Pacific Ocean into small inlets, not even inlets, but roundish coves. They're called dog hole coves. Mm. Why are they called dog hole coves? It has to do with, there's a couple of explanations. One of them was that it's so small that it's about the size of the circle that a dog would make in the grass when he walks around himself a couple of times before laying down. Another one has to do with that every schooner back in the day that was hauling lumber to San Francisco had a, had a dog on board the ship. And it's often foggy here on the coast. And when the ship uh, approaches a, a cove where there would be like a, a shipping pier for, for loading lumber mm -hmm. onto, the, onto the schooner, when the schooner was approaching in the fog, the dog would be barking. And so some people say that that is the origin of uh, why these coves are called dog holes. Yeah. I don't know which one is true. Maybe it's none of them. <laughs> but nonetheless, yeah. my dory would be roaming these dog hole coves. So I'm calling it a dog hole dory because that's what it's going to be doing. That's what it continues to do now. That's what it continues to do now. So you had this vision and as soon as this, this uh, wood shop that we're in now was set up, you bam, you start building. How long did it take you to build your boat? Your first, first iteration of your boat, I should say. The first iteration of my boat. It took me about a year. Okay. Amongst doing other jobs and things that needed to be done. That's right. Amongst also like maintaining uh, some semblance of a, of a job with a local cabinet maker. Very uh, good job, uh, a person from whom I learned a lot of woodwork mm -hmm. on a little bit higher level than with a chainsaw. <laughs> and it was very useful also for, for building this boat. The knowledge that he gave me. Different knowledge than a boat builder, than uh, Mr. Mowbert, Kenneth and Mary down in Wallala. Um, the building 
was slow because I didn't have any power. So everything was done with hand tools. It was it was handsaw, hammer and chisel, uh, axe, uh, draw knife, um, hand drills. No power. And it was incredibly enjoyable. But the kind of the way that you, I would imagine, wanted to do it as well. Absolutely. <laughs> hand planes. I learned a lot of hand plane work uh, with the uh, with the boat builder in Wallala. He he had very good hand tools. Finding the wood demanded that I get to the city a couple of times. I had to go and find the highest quality wood. They say boat building, you need. You don't need a lot of tools. You need the best wood in the world. Okay. Don't skimp on the wood. You don't need all the tools. Doesn't matter. It's the wood that matters. I think I read that in a book by the grand old man of, uh, of wooden boat building, Howard Chappelle. So I took that to heart, and I convinced a friend uh, convinced a friend of mine to take me to the city. To visit a series of lumber yards, he was uh, very knowledgeable, and he advised me, and I came home with all the all the lumber necessary to build a boat. And little by little, it came together, and it still. I can look at it and say, this is a pure and perfect example of beginner's luck. It's, it's really difficult to put my finger on anything that this boat should be done differently. And the fact that she's still uh, going strong, she was launched in 1987 and now uh, we're talking 2023. And so here we have, uh, well, that would be 36 years, I believe. Yeah. Going strong. Going strong. As good today as she was at launch time. So the process of making the boat, that was about a year. Yeah. I'm sure you were absolutely dying to get into the ocean for fishing. Did you manage to coincide, I'm guessing you did, but coincide the finishing of the boat with the beginning of the ideal Karma Pacific Ocean for the beginning of fishing season? Not at all. Launch date was December 2nd. 1987. <laughs> that doesn't sound ideal. No, not at all. It was very cold. There was still a lot of people at the, the beach, and I launched it in Navarro River. It, it was a beautiful day. Uh, the wind was okay. Uh, everybody who was there got a trip in the boat, and it was a fantastic experience. There were some other people there who had brought some of their boats along. There was a couple of canoes. It was a jolly affair. Uh, but it carried with it the promise that I had to be sitting on this boat without being able to fish for another half a year. Yeah. Because the ocean does not allow you to get into it in a rowboat until June. Sometimes July. If you're lucky, yeah. Sometimes July. So the long wait happened and then it, you arrived in the ocean. How was your fishing prowess at that point? I had fished a couple of years in my friend Neil's rowboat. You said, yes. And I had started at ground zero regarding fishing the Pacific Ocean. I started at ground zero 
in many places, fishing in Mexico, fishing in the Pacific Ocean down in Mexico, fishing in the mountain streams of uh, Guatemala, uh, places like that where you don't know anything about what's going on. You don't know the biology, you don't know what fish is in there, you don't know what bait to uh, use. These things, you just have to observe, listen, uh, find somebody who has the knowledge and start accumulating your own experiences little by little but you it always starts starts out you've been skunked <laughs> i mean it, that's just how it is <laughs> which is humbling you know something about that don't you oh you cut me deep either <laughs> i do i do i do but i wonder yeah that was definitely that was definitely a steep learning curve but you were very patient with me and you invited me back on the boat so so I thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I actually fished, uh, I didn't have a rod and reel in the beginning. Really? I did not. I had in, uh, down in Mexico, I had fished from the beach with a number 10 tin can. <laughs> I remember you saying, yes. With monofilament on it and a stick nailed into the can as a handle. And with enough lead, you can actually fling a hook 50 yards. That's a long way. With a light line, I'm guessing. Well, it's got to run off that can just right. Yeah. If it runs off that can just right, it pulls it off without any friction. And with the right technique of getting peripheral speed on the lead, it took a lot of practice, but we managed to fling it out past the surf line. I was in love with this tin can. <laughs> so I made a new one here. And I fished over the side of the boat with a tin can and my hand line. <laughs> I was a purist. I wasn't going to have any rod and reel. That only lasted up until I, I hooked a salmon by accident. I was fishing for bottom fish. Yes. A salmon took my hook, an enormous salmon. And this apparatus, the number 10 can, and a uh, you know, 100 pound test monofilament, is just not finesse enough to fight a salmon. Wow, that's a strong line, a 100 pound test. Line. 100 pound test, yeah. Wow. I, I was not dicking around. <laughs> You're like, nothing is getting away from me. No, right, you got it. <laughs> Well, this salmon did. Yeah, it straightened the hook. Really? It did. It was an enormous fish. I don't know how big it was. 35 pounds. There's no give. There's not enough give. There's not enough flexibility. It's just hard against hard. And, you know, when two forces like that meet, something's got to give. And it was the hook. And then I thought, wow. Had I had a fishing rod in my hand, and a reel with a, you know, with a drag set right, I would have caught that fish. So I retired my tin can and I, and I bought a second-hand fishing rod. Do you still have the tin can here? I do. You do? I do. Oh, I'm going to have to take a photograph. Yeah, of I have the tin can. can. I have the rod. The rod is up there. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I never throw anything away. <laughs> 
we must next fishing season for sentimental purposes take the tin can out for absolutely a, for uh it, it works really well i mean you just get the hook down to the bottom ah, fish on up just reel it up no discussion <laughs> brilliant so in this journey of your fishing i'm, I'm kind of wondering what like, what's the next the next step you know like you've got the boat together you've got out on the ocean the learning curve begins fishing yeah. mm -hmm. And understanding the nuances of the uh, the dog hole, the dog hole fishing, or the dog is it dog, dog hole? Is that the right expression? Yeah, yeah. Was there a point where you're like, okay, now I'm bringing on all this fish? Yeah. Like, how do I process it? Yeah. Here? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to do a good job, right? You got to. It's just like when you cut on a tree, you got to know what to do with it. Hmm. You know, you got to lay it in a place where you can get to it because you know what you're going to be doing with it. These things, coming home with an enormous amount of fish, holy Moses, what am I going to do with all this? You know? How much fish were you bringing? I mean, in general now, it's about 50 pounds of fish we'll yeah. pull in in a day. Yeah. Or, you know, just a few hours of fishing out there. Was it the same kind of yeah. volume then? Yes, it was. You had a limit. You, like, cut yourself off. No. <laughs> sometimes we caught a lot more other times not mm. but on average yeah 50 pounds on a fishing trip so what do you do when you turn up back at the the property with 50 plus pounds of fish that you need to figure out well th there's two things that kicks in here one of them was that uh, Karen was the chef at a local inn mm -hmm. she uh, ruled the kitchen uh, this kitchen had facilities and uh, so um, well Karen's friends people in the area they wanted fish it was the same reason Lee Fu was catching fish back in 1892 <laughs> you know now I'm here a hundred years later people still eat fish and they know the difference between fish from fish counter and fish that comes straight out of the ocean and is fresh. But nonetheless, the fish has to be kept cold. Mm -hmm. The fish has to be, from the time it's taken out of the water, be treated right so that the, it's worth eating. So the, the, the in-between station was uh, Karen's kitchen facilities at the inn where she was a chef. So that makes sense because I was wondering in a in a homestead that has no power or Correct. general facilities, how do you that becomes an issue? Yeah, how much can you really eat yourself, mm -hmm. right? And how much can you process if you don't have refrigeration? Yeah, so you you I salted, I I uh, pickled, and I smoked. And then I gave away, and that went on for several years. Because we did not have any power here. Mm -hmm. One thing that becomes clear very quickly is that you got to do something with your uh, fish guts. When you put your fish, at least half of it is awful. Yeah. It's heads and guts, skin, mm -hmm. fins, bone. Things that uh, you can't eat. What do you do? 
Well, you compost it. But that is easy if it's kitchen scraps from uh, from leftover from 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 cooking. Yeah. But when you have out of fifty pounds of fish, half of it is scrap or is uh, is 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 awful. It's gotta process. It has to process. Yeah. There was a lot of trial and error. For 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 the longest time, I was breeding maggots. <laughs> Lots of them, I can imagine. I was making flies. That was not good. So what were you doing wrong to start with? I imagine making a lot of smell as well. Yes. Yeah. Maggot infested fish compost is not a cozy affair at all. <laughs> not at all. Well, um, I learned to make a good compost pile. It, it demanded that there was some other soil, that there's soil involved. Yes. There's got to be soil involved. It can't just be rotting carcass. No, it's got to be, it can't also only be forest duff, which I used. No, it didn't work. No, it didn't work. It, uh, it doesn't uh, bring the, the temperature up to a point where the, where the flies stay away. Forest duff is good. It makes good compost in the end. But in the, as a processing medium, it's not good. So I had to get soil. Soil meant digging and bringing in from elsewhere. I acquired a trailer. I still have it, by the way. It's now a boat trailer. It was a beautiful thing. It was a, like a, a, a Model T that had been modified. Uh, the front end of a Model T where the steering uh, arms had been welded to the axle to hold the, the, the wheels aligned with, with themselves. And then some clever hands with a, with a welding apparatus had uh, kind of made a box and a tow bar. So the axle is a, from a Model T. Like a, you mean a Ford Model For, T? Ford Model T. Wow, you mean like the original mass production car? That's correct. From the Americas. I think the Model A was the first. Or it was an A. It was a later. It wasn't okay. a T. It was an A, I'm sorry. Oh, wow. That's an old car. Yes. Ha! And the wheels are like, uh, I believe that they're like 16 inch wheels, you know, the big wheels. Very good suspension. Perfect suspension for a, a, for a little trailer, especially a boat trailer. Anyway, I hauled a lot of dirt on that trailer. There was some, some uh, houses being built down on the headlands that was on the property of one of Karen's friends, one of the people who worked in the inn with her. And they were excavating. They were digging footing for the, for the house. There's always piles of dirt when you build a house. Yeah. Things have to be moved around. Dirt has to be moved around. I had my run of that dirt. I was very careful not to import any poison oak or any such thing. Very careful, because we don't have any poison oak up here. That would be a big mistake. That would be awful, terrible. Karen was very paranoid about uh, the presence of poison oak and uh, she would not allow any dirt to come up here unless she had been down seeing what's in the area. There was no poison oak where they were excavating. 
We, I did not import any poison oak. That's a wise choice. Got to have your your eyes and your ears open, otherwise you can make mistakes that are just going to haunt you for the rest of your life. I can I can only imagine if you just created a giant pit of poison oak here. This that would be definitely awful. a sour twist to your dream location. Yep. You got to watch your steps. <laughs> But I, I got this, the medium, good soil yes, for the compost, and I, that became the backbone of my gardening. In the beginning, it was very small. It was uh, some raised beds uh, that immediately got in, uh, invaded by uh, redwood roots. Oh. So the first, first year's crops was fantastic, you know. Next year's crop, not so much. Third year's crop, like almost non-existent. And then I dig down and uh, it's like one big thicket of uh, redwood roots. Really? Yeah, they invade. They get in there for those nutrients. Yes, they do. Those delicious fish nutrients that you're pushing, putting in there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That redwoods is like, uh, they, don't, they don't stop and they can travel a long ways. Thank you. So these are these are like the childhood diseases of gardening in uh, the redwoods, gardening in the forests. These rude awakenings. So you've got that compost, and and talk me through because I'm very curious. Like this has been a definite. I mean, I'm sure for many people who've come fish with you and, and experienced the process of working on fish once coming back from the uh, the bay down down at the ocean. And we'll go into a lot of detail about this, I'm sure, yeah. later on. And uh, we, we will, this is a slight uh, bit of foreshadowing, but we will in the future do some more detailed podcasts about like the nuances of what makes fantastic compost or, or like how to process like actual hot fish guts filled compost to make absolute rocket fuel for vegetables and all those kinds of things. But so, so I guess like in a, in a like a quick overview of how it would work, what you formulated is rolling it, like bringing in fresh soil. Yeah. You know, and what about bears? Would they not raid raid the situation, or what? What was the? Well, back back until about ten years ago, there was no bears in this area. There was once upon a time when Europeans first came to this coast. This was ruled by bear and mountain lion as the uh, alpha predators of the area, but. Uh, white people have a way of like killing alpha predators uh, right away and bears and pumas were simply wiped out and if if any bear or puma ever showed up there were people who were very knowledgeable in how to track them down corner them and kill them mm. right here right now 24 hours later bears dead from the things I read as well from long ago, I think I read the Journal of a Trapper. I'm not sure if you've read that. If, I have not. If you haven't, then I'll, I'll lend it to you. It's very good. Um, what's his name? Russell, I think is the name of the... Osborne Russell, maybe? But the thing that's interesting is, is conventional thinking nowadays is like wild game animal. The most coveted wild game animal in this country is, is the deer, is what people think of when you think wild game that's usually the deer is the first thing that people that's for them that springs to mind but actually back in the day it was bear that were the most that was the most coveted source of meat 
more so way over than the than the lowly deer and maybe that's why it survived <laughs> more more you know like why the population when it was at the point of being wiped out but yeah bear are or have the, the way that uh the way that this guy this trapper would write about bear being so delicious it's clear that that was in the in the hearts of uh, of people at that time so it, it does make yeah. sense yeah but anyway i interrupted you can continue sorry no, you were asking uh, what's what with the bear, and uh, in the beginning when uh, I, my compost piles were like way less than ideal, the bear was never a problem. It was it was flies and maggots, raccoons, raccoons were ruling. It was this was raccoon country. I don't know what happened to the raccoon. The raccoon has basically disappeared. Now it's fox that is like the medium predator. In this area but the bear is back because the bear is now considered uh, a desirable part of uh, the fauna the ecosystem of the forest as it should be it has become a menace however because uh, it's become become a little bit too familiar or too comfortable with uh, close interaction with humans Absolutely. and with their environments that be as it may. I haven't had any bear uh, taking my compost apart. Even though I sometimes put 25 pounds of fish guts in three times a week. And it has to do with the way I mix it in. In the bin there's three areas. It's a four by three, three feet by four foot uh, enclosure in uh, cinder blocks. Cinder blocks are not packed tight together to in order to allow uh, oxygen to kind of like seep in through the pile. Okay. But every time I bury a new batch of fish guts, I dig down deep and agitate the last deposit of fish guts, which is now like completely rotted apart and hot and steamy. So I dig down and I agitate and aerate that area and then I put in the new fish guts and fresh soil. And it ignites immediately. It gets really hot very quickly. An hour later, the temperature in that new fish guts is up to like 120, 130 degrees. 130 degrees. It gets really hot, it cooks very quickly. It turns very quickly to, to a substance that a bear would not consider food. It gives off ammonia fumes, and ammonia is simply uh, not a substance that bears are keen on. So or, when they smell humans, probably from no, the nobody. <laughs> so when they smell the compost, they don't think food, and they stay away, and they have never broken into my compost. And it's hard enough to where uh, flies wouldn't uh, try. And I bury it deep enough. I got like five, six seven, eight inches of fresh soil on top of the neck, the last burial, the last deposit, that's enough for a fly to never be able to get in. Yes. If there's too much forest duff, which I used to use, you, they can crawl in. But this is soil and, uh, and um, sawdust and forest duff and other such things. It's a really good medium. It's not compact. Oxygen should be allowed to penetrate it. 
but it's also not loose enough to where fly, flies can get into it. Yeah. So the bears don't get in and the flies don't get in. That's right. The raccoons tried for a while, but not successful anymore because of the kind of fortified structure that you created, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. The raccoons, likewise, they smell ammonia and they don't do it. Okay, good. They don't get into it. So you didn't have any problems then with that compost, which it's, I, I still, for some reason, find it hard to get my head around. I, I mean, I understand the ammonia thing, but it's like when I've witnessed the sheer amount of meat that's getting pushed in there, it's, it's always hard for me to get my head around the fact that it's just not an issue. But it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's magical almost in a way. But one thing I will ask is, okay, so the bears aren't a problem for, um, for the fish guts, but then surely at some point you must have been growing fruits, fruit trees, there weren't fruit trees there naturally. Did you plant fruit trees on this property? Yes, I did. And then at what point did that become a, a wake up call with the bears? Did you have to do anything to keep them away? Oh my God. Uh, I, I have, I've had to capitulate to, <laughs> I, I've lost, uh, many trees. The, the, the biggest heartbreak was, uh, this peach tree that we planted about 15 years ago. That's before the bears were really rampaging, rampaging the neighborhood. And it was growing, it was sitting one peach, then five peaches, then 20 peaches. And it was delicious and it was a beautiful tree. And then one, one summer it was loaded and they were big. They weren't these small little hard ones, you know, they were like big, nice peaches. And they were just about getting ripe when I come out one morning and that peach tree is laying down and stripped just pushed over pushed over stripped that's when i realized that and it was fenced in that we have a problem <laughs> we have a real problem and over the next uh, several years um i was lucky if i got any apples at all there was one apple tree that was so big that the bear couldn't get all the apples really luckily Those carrots, I just snuck a carrot. They're so tasty. I just, it blows my mind sometimes. What's that? Those carrots are so tasty. I, I know. Snuck a cheeky carrot there. I just, every time I eat one of your carrots here, I'm just astounded at how such a simple thing can be so tasty. I know. It's a far cry from... Uh, supermarket. From supermarket, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think we were talking about the, the, the fruit tree being completely laid down. Is that right? Yeah, it was laid down. It wasn't the first fruit tree that got uh, completely destroyed all the way to the, all the way. So, like, that, that tree didn't survive? No, that tree did not survive. After a number of years? Yeah. <laughs> oh. After having guided it through its tender childhood and protecting it from deers and, and, and watching it, I mean, peach blossoms are just so beautiful you know and it, it the tree was just had this aura around it of, of beauty and uh, and and uh, it wanted to give and we wanted to eat and we never got to do that i'm sure you were waiting anticipating watching the fruits ripen yes as was the bear i'm sure <laughs> the and they managed to get them just before they arrived 
other trees uh, met sad demises. Uh, we lost two apple trees all the way because they were broken. They were simply mangled all the way to the, to the bottom. Two trees uh, I could prop back up. They were laid all the way down. I could prop them back up and uh, put some supports under them. And I made them get root hold again. And uh, they, uh, they survived and, and thrived. One later on got so mangled the second time that it too died. And um, had three trees left out of 12, I believe. All of them have been systematically wiped out by bears. Correct. Oh, I guess it is what it is. Yeah. I don't want to hate the bear. <laughs> But sometimes when you come out and see a tree massacred like that, you get murder in your heart. <laughs> you do. And also, it's, it's nothing compared to my friend Jane, though, who comes out and sees her chickens, uh, chicken coop destroyed and her chicken uh, dead. That's, that's more of an emotional impact. Mm -hmm. I wonder also, though, in that, in, there must have been in the time that you were you know, however many years it's been that you've been here, attracting animals onto the property with various things that you're growing creates opportunities to harvest meat. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, I haven't shied away from eating uh, what's, you know, commonly classified as vermin. <laughs> okay, tell me more. Well, you know, I, the, the possum shows up and plunders your... Uh, your strawberry patch, right? And you're thinking, uh, if you do that again, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> so it does it again, and then I eat it. <laughs> if you ate my strawberries, I'm going to eat you. And it was interesting to uh, butcher and eat a possum. They're not a terribly appetizing animal. Not, to, not to look at, not yes. to butcher. There's nothing charming about a possum, although the way it is so obliviously walking through the world as if there was no care at all. And if it, there is anything to be afraid of, it just lays down and plays possum. Plays dead. Really? Yes, they do. If they're cornered and in danger, they play dead. And that must work in some capacity. Yeah. Is it? I can't understand it, it, why. It must work. I mean, I'll, we had a we had a black lab uh, dog uh, uh, for many years, and he would corner possums, and and we go out and uh, Jack, what do you got there? Oh, he's got a possum. So the possum is laying there, right? And uh, oh, possum's dead. And Jack's like. Chewing it, gumming it, you know, not biting it, just uh, nuzzling it, you know. Do something, damn it, damn it, damn it. It's like as if the dog wants this animal to be alive so that it can, like, harass it some more. But the possum was laying there stone cold dead. And then Jack loses interest and walks away and goes and does something else, takes a dump or whatever happens, and then comes back to the, the possum. Possum's gone. <laughs> not dead at all. Just plain possum. How funny. It is funny. I'll be curious to see how well that works against an animal that's really hungry. Well, it didn't work uh, with me. 
right? <laughs> okay, Jack's got a possum. Okay, possum. I'm going to eat you. <laughs> Thanks for the act. Yeah. But possums, for all their kind of like rat, ratty look and kind of like innocent or harmless look, they got the biggest fangs in French of the entire like animal world. Really? Really. I have a possum skull. Would you like to see it? I would love to see it. I'll bring it. So this, oh, it's two skulls you're showing me. Yeah, I'm just showing them for uh, comparison. Here we have a fox. Okay. May I, may I hold it? Yes. Okay, so you've actually glued it in position. I did. Yeah, that's an amazing. That's an amazingly immaculate skull that you've got here. This thing is spotless. <laughs> Top jaw and bottom jaw. Yes. Not a single tooth missing. Yeah, okay. So this is a fox. And this is the possum for comparison. Whoa, look at that. Look at those fangs. They're worthy of a saber-toothed tiger. That's vampiric. That's insane. You can't see it in the, from the outside of it when you look at a, a possum's face. It doesn't betray the existence of these daggers. It, yeah, you don't get that impression at all. But why an insectivore, uh, which is, it's, it's kind of a, it eats everything. Yeah. It's uh, it anything and everything, but it, it, it likes to eat insects that it digs out and, and catches on the surface of the ground and eats fruits. Why these big fangs? It's kind of wondrous. Absolutely. I'm just taking a little video of this. This is, ah, they're huge, these fangs. This, I mean, it's like two to three times the size in scale. A similar size skull. I can see why you chose the fox and the, the possum. But yeah, this enormous. Very, very cool though. And an interesting shaped skull almost similar to a bear in a way like that like, yeah like a ridge across the top of the head that's right and it also has a brain cavity where there's like no room for anything there's no room for any brain there's yeah. no room for any brain unlike the fox which has a, a very well-developed brain cavity which is, could explain why the um lay down and play possum strategy it seems to be the only one available it's not a multitasking situation going on in that brain box. It also has extremely tough skin when you butcher it. It's quite a bit of work to butcher a possum. And there's not a whole lot of meat in it. It's not, a, it's not an agile, swift animal. So the return is a little bit, uh, like, maybe not worth it. And all in all, it's not, as I said earlier, an appetizing animal. So eating a possum is, is something that... It's pretty low on my uh, yes food list. But definitely not off the list. <laughs> not, no. <laughs> the only thing that's ever been off the list that I have yet to eat is skunk. Really? Yeah. I have had the opportunity. Uh, I had a dead uh, skunk, a young skunk before um, the scent glands were fully developed. 
-hmm. So it actually smelled pretty good. Um, I still thought, nah, not gonna eat skunk. Not gonna try that. No. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, I know it's disappointing, eh? No, it's not disappointing. I'm just surprised, yeah. given, given the stories that I've heard from you. Yeah. Your yeah. Insatiable <laughs> curiosity about eating Food, animals. Yeah. I've eaten everything else here, but not skunk. <laughs> so. No animal was safe here apart from skunk. <laughs> We've established that. You were uh, also, I mean, you were using your boat for fishing. We're kind of jumping around a little bit. Yeah, that's here, fine. Yeah. I'm curious, there was a time when you were spearfishing and get, getting abalone as well, was that? Yeah. Okay, during when, because abalone was available until only the last 10 or 15 years, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, when I started diving for abalone, you could take five. Okay. Which is a lot of abalone. Uh, abalone fishing was uh, a winter activity, spear fishing also, because in the summer I had the boat. Um, so would you spearfish from the shore then? You just swim out from the beach? Yeah. If it's a bit rough, it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, if it's rough I don't. You wouldn't go out? No, then it's murky. It's difficult to spearfish when it's murky. You can catch abalone, you can get abalone when it's murky, it doesn't matter. You can feel your way around. But, no, you look for the good days. Which the there are few and far between, but there are there are few days. Th like today. Yes. Fishing is over. The ocean is calm. The sun is out. The visibility is probably fantastic. Yeah. And you can spend a whole hour just laying and wallowing in the surface and get baked on your backside by the sun. It's wonderful. It's a fantastic thing to do. I love it. Uh, Spearfishing took a real uh, blow in 1994 when there was a wholesale deregulation of fishing inside a one mile line that had previously been off limits and it was opened up for commercial fishing. And live fishermen took over that area. And live fishing means you, you catch fish on shallow water you bring them up into the boat. They don't suffer uh, hyperbaric trauma from uh, traveling in big water column because you're fishing on shallow water. You can put them in a live well in your boat. You can give them over to a, 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 a truck that will haul them in seawater to the city where it's sold in the Asian markets primarily. Okay. Very lucrative, uh, pound for pound. Much more so than like... Uh, fish that has been taken with a with a dragnet or longlining. Mm -hmm. It's also more work intensive of course. It's you got to you got to treat these fish right. Mm -hmm. So the live fishing uh took a real toll on the near shore ecology by basically removing all the alpha predators in the fish world from from near shore and shallow water environment. And so all of a sudden, from one year to another, you go out, spearfish, and you could be in the water for half an hour and not see anything that was worth spearing. Yeah. Prior to that, you couldn't dive down without seeing fish that was worth spearing. It was like 
Should I take that or should I take that? Should I take both? No, it's too much. Let me find the right one. Uh, none of those. That one over there. It's ridiculous. The the ecosystem was was like maximum until the live fishermen came in. They destroyed it. It got destroyed in a profound way that I think we're living with a repercussion of that disturbance of the ecosystem, the near shore uh, environment. It's part of why things are so awry and have gone so amok right now. Mm -hmm. I think is that commercial exploitation of, uh, of a very sensitive and very finite part of the ocean ecology. Well, when did that stop? It has never stopped. Oh, so the live fishing is still happening. It's still going on right oh, now. I didn't know. Yes. Okay, so that explains why, yeah, why things are still happening. They are. And do you think that that also affects the abalone situation? Well, it has reverberation through the entire fish uh, food web. Things are complicated. It's like we're talking about an organism. You, you can take an organism and chop it up into small segments and, and understand them chemically and physically. Sure, absolutely, you can. But you can't take an organism and chop it up into only things you can understand physically and chemically and say, oh yeah, that's the whole organism there. Let's, let's cure it. No, no, that's not how it works. The whole organism is very difficult to understand. But we do know that when we screw up one thing really radically, it affects the whole picture. Yeah. In an unpredictable way. And right now, I, I believe we are talking about a, you know, a multifaceted negative impact on the nearshore ecosystem that has come home to roost now in the mass die-off of abalone and uh, their you know, the kelp, the ecosystem, the forest. Yeah, and the, I guess the huge invasion of purple urchins as well. Like there's, a, there's just a huge imbalance everywhere, right? It, it's all tied together. But in which way? We are pretty much too dumb to figure that out. <laughs> We're not too dumb to destroy. We're too dumb to fix. Fingers crossed. One day it can be uh, resolved. I mean, yeah. Would you say that you've seen a uh, general, I mean, you are, you are saying this, but I'm asking you outright. In the 30-something years that you've been fishing these waters from your boats, would you say, you know, I don't have any frame of reference because when I go fishing with you the last few years, we're putting up 50 pounds of fish regularly and it's not, it's not an, usually an intense labor to do so. But have, would you say it's gotten harder or the, the quality and the number and the size of fish is just definitely on a downward trajectory? Uh, well, I can't answer that with one sentence. Uh, in the nearshore environment, things have changed radically mm -hmm. out to depth of about, uh, say, 50, 40, 50 feet. Okay. From there on and out, it's a different... Uh, it's a different ecology. Uh, it has not changed in any remarkable way. Some years are a little bit meager. Some years are a little bit more um, productive. This year and last year has been incredibly uh, productive. There's been a lot of bait fish, 
a lot of feed from all the way from phytoplankton, the very lowest rung of the food chain or the food web up until whales. Everybody has been numerous, happy, well-fed. It's a joy to behold. Bird life has exploded. They've had very good broods a couple of years in a row. Surviving chicks. That's what it all comes down to. Yeah. And when you, when you have been looking at the ocean, you haven't been uh, able to like ignore the enormous amount of pelicans we've seen this year. The last two years, I'd yeah. say, right? I hadn't really seen... I mean, I'd seen pelicans before, but now there was definitely a transition where there are moments when you're walking along the coast and there are just pelicans on every rock. Yeah. They're everywhere. And there's been plenty of feed for them all. Mm. And they had very, very successful breeding a couple of years in a row. Well, long may it continue. Not bloody likely. Things have cycles. They go, they come and they go. True. I mean, we have a lot of bait fish all the way from needlefish, sardines, anchovy, herring, um, mackerel. Just colossal quantities. The biomass is unfathomable all the way up and down the coast. You look over the side of your boat, bait fish, bait fish everywhere. That is because of, well, who knows? It's nutrients. Where do they come from? Some say it's the forest fires that has brought so much airborne ash <clears throat> out and, and dumped it on the ocean and it has fertilized the ocean. Interesting. And has triggered a, a, a shockwave of, uh, of production through the food web for several years in a row. Could be. That's interesting as a theory, especially if there have been less fires in history because of, you know, yeah. fire suppression. Right. Which could, could then, I guess you would potentially claim that that would mean less nutrients over a number, like a great number of years has, has kind of been getting to the ocean in general and now it's a bumper. Now it's a bumper. Well, yeah, that's... So has uh, the fishing changed? I would say no. I still catch an average of 50 pounds of fish on a fishing trip. Uh, I fish very differently now. And I still catch about the same amount of fish. It's very generous ocean out here. It's mm. full of fish. I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> So I have to say then, like, and forgive me, we're jumping around a little bit, but the thing that we had talked about beforehand, which is, you know, all of this fish, this, this large quantity of fish that you bring in in the summer over a period of maybe two months, three yeah. months, something like that. And then your learning of how to process this vast number of flesh and, and fish, fish guts and heads and all that kind of stuff to make this killer compost. Tell me about the gardening side of your homesteading, because that's a whole kind of part. You know, we've talked a little bit about the fruit trees and their vulnerability to yeah. the wildlife. <laughs> but tell me about your journey growing vegetables, because you must have started somewhere. But now I see you and I, you know, I taste this carrot that I've taken from this bowl on this table. And it is, I can 
easily say the most delicious carrot I've ever eaten in my, in my life. And it always surprises me when I eat that carrot or those carrots that you have in the garden. And so tell me about that process of coming here and then, you know, knocking trees down. And then you've got to be at some point. I mean, you came from farming. I did. So you must have been comfortable in some aspect with that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was ingrained in my, in my entire childhood and early adult life. And it became a, it became toil, right? It became uh, something really like profoundly unattractive. Mm -hmm. Farming life, to me. Yeah. That's why I decided ah, I'm gonna go into the book world. But when I came here and I found a new life with my wife Karen, a like-minded person, and we were in sync, then I could take up from that point where things with country life and farming and and oneness and closeness with nature of that of that intensity that intimacy from from when it was attractive from when it was play with mother in the garden right mm -hmm. there's something fantastically desirable about that picture it's so pastoral and uh, and ancient so being able to do it on my own uh terms of you know how much effort do i want to put into this what I, what is the purpose it's not to make money it's not to bring things to market it's not to raise a certain amount and or we'll like starve to death uh, you know it's not a part of the economy per se it's not like i choose it as a livelihood i wanted to stay away from that I do not want to be a slave to Mother Nature to the point where I uh, had to declare war on nature. For a larger scale. Right. To, in order to be profitable in some capacity. Yes. My family uh, in Denmark had, they were almost all farmers. Almost all farmers. And I can tell you, it makes it makes people angry farming it makes them it makes them at war with nature it makes them not good people it, i know that the image is not like that the farm life is so healthy farm life is wholesome farm life is something to be desired yeah no not true i think farmers are in, in general not very attractive personalities. Interesting. Because they are at war with nature. I can also imagine, and forgive me, this is an outside perspective. I don't, you know, I'm just speaking for someone who doesn't really know about farming, just seeing it from far away, but it's always looked like an incredibly hard existence. You know, you are constantly working. It's a relentless, series of tasks that will always be there and you from dawn until dusk it, i always get the impression that you are it may be you may be doing it in a mechanized fashion but that isn't necessarily i don't know I don't, this, and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like you are just increasing your yield versus your amount of working hours <laughs> does that make sense yeah it does it is true all, all of what you're saying Farming on this scale, on the gardening scale, 
in the beginning, necessarily, it was like very limited because I didn't have any areas. And the areas that I developed got invaded by redwood roots. So what the hell do you do? When redwoods are cut down, they sprout again from the rootstock. Yeah. When you cut down a fir tree, it doesn't sprout again. Or a pine. Redwoods do. They sprout directly from the ground up. They have an enormous root system and they have no greenery. And then all of a sudden, they have this big root support and they can really pump some biomass into the new sprouts. They grow very, very rapidly. And they travel, the roots will travel far. So the only way to deal with that is to get rid of the roots. So if you decide to be a farmer in the redwoods, you have to do something about the redwoods. You have to do something about the roots. You got to cut down a tree, yeah, but then you got to grind the stump. Okay. You got to hire a stump grinder. A guy who comes in with a piece of semi-heavy equipment and set up shop right next to the stump and he starts a, a humongous noise-making vertical chainsaw-like apparatus with carbide teeth that goes eight feet from side to side and slowly reaches into the ground. It's lower and lower. Lower and lower into the ground and, and cuts through root, dirt, everything, anything and pumps out a a steady stream of, uh, of of duff and crunched up wood and dirt and leave a big pile behind and now the redwood is gone. No chance of coming back. Well, it depends on whether the stump grinder got all of the living part of the root system. If he didn't, then it will sprout again. <laughs> so we had to put some money into that. Have a stump grinder come in and uh, remove some redwood stumps that were invading our growing space. That's all right. Mm. You gotta break eggs to make omelet, they say. <laughs> uh, and as uh, you know, I was making compost, quite a bit of it. Um, I bought a load of uh, topsoil from some uh, reputable people. You know, here comes 10 yards of topsoil and built some raised beds and started uh, gardening at a little bit bigger scale. So what, what year was this? How, how long into this homesteading life had you, did you decide to do this? Well, uh, a thing happened in 1988. Uh, and it had to do with that the county declared war on... Uh, backwoods hippies who had built the dwellings without permits. So this is what, eight years after? That's about, it's about seven years after Karen had this place built. Okay. It was about six years after I showed up in the, on, on the scene here. Okay. And I see this as the last gasp of the, uh, the country gentry the, the, the people who originally thought that this is all ours and we rule this place. We sit, 
we sit in the in the Rotary clubs and we sit in the board of supervisors and on the town councils and the fire departments and the police and the sheriffs and we sit on it all. Up until the time came when the hippies actually began to be majority. I think that they slammed the door one more time by issuing a so-called amnesty for people who had built illegally out in the woods, built without permit. Yes. So the rules were, you can apply for a special permit, a class K permit that will allow you to like skid, to slide some of the rules that otherwise would be applied to a new building. You can either do that or you can face a stiff fine when we find you eventually because we're going to come looking for you. <laughs> and when one of the supervisors, uh, county supervisors who was a co-sponsor of the bill, she was kind of a, a flinty uh, entrepreneur type. Uh, when she was confronted with the simple fact that her ordinance would shift something like five million dollars in 1988 money from the poorest uh, inhabitants of the county to the wealthiest inhabitants of the county like the people who were supplying like uh, all the hardware and the piping and the gravel and the heavy equipment and 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 trucking and all of that 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 there was going to be a shift of money upwards yeah she said i don't care and by the way you probably thank me for it in the long run and that's taught like uh, somebody who only really tolerates that people live the way she does you know in a in probably a tasteless suburban home that uh you know has a nice lawn Anyway, we'll take a break again. Yeah. So, yes, the money was going upwards. The money was going upwards. It was going from the likes of us who were living at the, the lowest possible level of consumption that you can imagine. I mean, imagine not having, having power, plumbing, or phone. You can't consume anything. Gas for the car. Kerosene for the little lighting that we had. Some propane once in a while for the cook stove. That was it. There was no, there was no consumption. So um, what happens then is that in order to apply for class K, you have to have a flush toilet. So, they set a series of rules. You have to have a flush toilet. You have to have guardrails on your staircases. You have to uh, have a certain um, clearing under the house. And um, that's just a whole series of, this is what you need to do. In order to do that, in order to have a flush toilet, you have to have water and you have to have power. Uh. You have to have plumbing. Simple double whammy and requirement. Power. You do. You have to 
you have to spend a lot of money. Mind you, this property was cleared only enough so that there was enough sun on the house so we didn't mold in the winter. And there was enough clearing around the house, uh, around the shop here, so that I had a little bit of elbow room around it. There was no room. In order to have a flush toilet, you have to have a septic system. You have to have a septic tank and a leach field. Yes. In order to have a septic tank and a leach field, you have to have clear space. In order to have clear space, you have to call in the bulldozers. Yeah. Bulldozers are big, heavy, very expensive things to operate. So over the next two years, we probably dropped about somewhere between twenty and $30,000 in 1988 money. Wow. Into reaching the required uh, standard for Class K um, permit. I have to interject with a question, though. I'm just curious. What was your bathroom situation before? Were you just going off into the woods and digging a hole? Uh, for, for a few years, it was a hole with a, a couple of boards on top of it. Okay, classy. Yes. <laughs> it was very simple. Yeah. I mean, very easy. Good enough. Yeah. Then I thought, ah, uh, you know, in the winter, it, it, it would be nice to have a roof. <laughs> so I made a roof. You know, a privy, a classic privy. And, the, and this is going back to the context of 50 inches of rain over the period of maybe six that, months. That's right. <laughs> a roof would be a luxury. A, a, roof, a roof would be nice. <laughs> so uh, we had a nice privy, you know, it was perfect, good. It was, uh, I dug it really deep, so it never filled up. Perfect. Yeah. We call it a permashitter. <laughs> it was deep enough to where it just never filled up. Two people couldn't fill it up. It kind of like disappeared into Mother Earth. It just got absorbed. Just disappeared. Fantastic. Yeah. So there's no, you don't have to do any processing or anything. It's just big not, enough hole. None. The Earth takes care of it. No, pro no processing. But that was no longer acceptable. So we had to have a, a, a flushing toilet. And so we had to like go all the way down back to clearing land, digging trenches, laying pipe, bringing a septic tank, bringing a power pole, stringing PG&E cables, um, laying pipe under the house, getting, build a bathroom. Um, a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of money. All our money gone. Um, so now we have power. Now I have lights in the shop. Now we can work 24 hours a day if we want to. Got ourselves a freezer, refrigerator. Now we don't have to rely on Karen's uh, job for uh, fish processing either. Um, so it was a forced transition, but a positive one in the long run. It way. was a forced transition, but the flinty entrepreneur in the board of Buddhist, on the board of supervisors, I have to reluctantly say that she was probably right. It was a good thing. It was a, it was a new situation that opened up a whole series of new possibilities. You know, I've done enough work with axe and draw knife and handsaw and chainsaw 
and hammer and chisel and blah blah etc 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 I I was ready to take the next step should we, should we pause at that moment it seems like a great opportunity to let's do that take the next step in our food so talk me through this delicious okay this is a very simple dish that we're gonna eat here we have uh, an apple, a slice of apple. We're not going to eat the apple now. The apple belongs to a different dish. We have cucumbers and we have um, tomato and we have basil pesto. Oh, that looks good. And then we take a cracker and we smear a little pesto on. And then we put a little tomato and cucumber oh that looks good and then we take salt from the ocean aha just a little sprinkle okay and a dash of coarse ground pepper i'm gonna stop videoing because i want to make my own this looks really good cheers cheers mm. Wow. Well, wow, that's fantastic. I'm glad that these these apples survived the, the gauntlet against the the wildlife. This year the bear has had so much huckleberry to eat out in the woods that it hasn't given a shit about my puny little fruit trees. It hasn't found it worth the visit. Because the huckleberry production this year is second to none. Yeah. Just enormous. Every, everywhere. And they're so big. It's like the huckleberries are the size of blueberries. An enormous production of biomass. Yeah. I was wondering about that because I've seen a huge number of uh, bear poops out in the woods, in the wild where I've been. And I mean, it's normal to see a lot of huckleberries in the poops anyway but they're <laughs> just everywhere these huge yeah. shits confettied with huckleberries all over they just form this deep purple color yeah where they are just dyed it's clear they're not eating much else the bears it is really impressive so in a way it's nice that you all gardens had a bit of a break courtesy my of garden had, i have not been visited by the bear but a bear was sighted a quarter mile east of me yesterday okay a very healthy looking full-grown male so we were talking about the process of becoming a gardener yes in the homesteading sense well we have been uh, we had accepted the terms of uh, of being uh, getting a class K uh, permit. Yes, that's right. And we went through the motions over a period of two years and uh, cleared like better part of a quarter acre of forest in order to establish um, a leach field for the septic system. But we cleared a lot more than that because we wanted to put in a bigger garden and we wanted to push the redwoods out of the way so that we wouldn't have to struggle with root invasion because that's just a losing struggle. 
I don't want, as I said, I don't want to be at war with the nature. I don't want to be struggling against forces. It's hard enough to be a farmer. It's hard enough to be a gardener. There's so many X factors. Having the redwood, the hungry, ever hungry redwood as your competitor uh, is a losing battle. I don't want to put in the work and, be, and stand with a losing hand. Yeah. Because it is a lot of work. And a lot of people question if it's worth the effort. I understand the question. The answer to me is easy. That it is worth the effort. Even such lowly products, such as a head of cabbage. I mean, what's a head of cabbage? Two dollars? Something like that? Mm -hmm. Hard to find anything cheaper than a head of cabbage. I've grown cabbage this year. Um, I don't know what what kind it was. I got it from a friend who is uh, really really good at uh, raising seedlings, so he gives me a six pack once in a while. Fantastic cabbage. I mean, there's no comp competition. It's the same with the carrot. Carrot is a lowly vegetable. It's inexpensive at supermarket. Hmm. But you put a carrot like this in your mouth and you will never think about the carrot the same way again. <laughs> There's no comparison. It's even funny because I know that's absolutely true. I think we successfully managed to pull one carrot out of the ground this year. Yeah. It was tasty, but it didn't, yeah, it, it didn't even come close to the yeah. flavor of this. I have a, a great big advantage in uh, my fish compost. There's no doubt about it. That's true. So, we expanded our garden because a, a series of events took place. My wife quit a job at her inn mm -hmm. because of, for, for a variety of reasons. And she became a caterer. She was making food for people privately. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, a garden became a much more important and keystone factor in our economy, in our rural life. Mm. It wasn't just a matter of like eating good. It was a matter for Karen to be able to cater to her uh, customers the best possible. There's always that quest, the best possible. And the garden became uh, ever larger because Karen consumed more and more. She is a famous chef, has been, she was probably known by everybody up and down the coast, has fed many thousands of people and for good reason. She always worked from the best of ingredients the best that was available in the situation. Not all from the garden, of course, but as much as possible. And I was a willing uh, contributor and the compost, the fish compost, and the, the garden space and the consumption through Karen's catering business, it found a kind of a harmonic equilibrium. The nutrients that came from the fish went into the ground, went into Karen's business went into making money. Uh, that was 
running smoothly and sweetly. Yeah. Right up until Karen uh, got hit by a disease and uh, her business closed down and now the garden has found it's uh, a different equilibrium, one that fits me. And my economy of giving. This is a this is a peculiar economy to be a part of. And it's very old. I have a lot of fish. I give away a lot of fish. When you give away fish to a friend or to a loved one, there's no need to reciprocate. You don't expect anything in return. Mm. There's no need to maintain a balance. But when you establish a social network among people who love fresh fish, instead of fish from the fish counter. And if that's your only uh, touching point with, the, with, with the, that group of people, other than maybe their neighbor, maybe you've known about them, they're a member of the community, you know who they are, but now they're eating your fish. Now you have tied some strings together with those people. That kind of giving sooner or later demands balance and equilibrium of sorts. Mm -hmm. Reciprocity. And so people give back. And I happened to make a list of things that was just loosely taken from memory about what I have gotten in return. Okay. Whiskey, very good whiskey by the way, honey, wine, beer, bread, hot cider, kimchi. By the way, that's all from the same person. He's a master of fermenting. Wow. He has gone out of his way. He has gone to Normandy to learn how to make hot cider. He's learned to make kimchi from Korean people. His beer, he went to Norway to track down a yeast that had gone, that has been inherited from generation to gen generation among Norwegian farmers for over a thousand years. A yeast. <laughs> smuggled it back into the United States and made ale from that yeast and it is some of the best beer that's ever brewed on this planet. <laughs> There's no better beer brewer than this guy. He doesn't just get my fish. He gets to go out in my boat also and fish from, from a dory. <laughs> yeah, we have a, we have a long and, uh, and very fruitful relationship in that regard. Persimmons, peaches, Apple juice, cheese, the goat and sheep cheese we ate here uh, yes. last time. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic cheese. Dairy from a Jersey cow. A friend of mine was raising Jersey, oh, Jersey wow. cows. Yeah. Uh, the dairy that comes from Jersey cows has to be considered among the most uh, precious items on the planet. Like butter from a Jersey cow. Mm. Oh, my. She doesn't have the Jersey cow anymore. That's, that was a loss. <laughs> She's thinking about getting, getting one again because she, she misses Jersey cow milk. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Poultry of all kinds, you know, chickens and ducks and eggs, lamb, goat, beef, 
elk, pork, wild pig, including. So this is like the kind of economy that goes around when it's based on giving and not money. Because I don't want the money to be part of the exchange when it comes to fish. Absolutely. And also, it, I think it's like you said, it cements community when you give without an expectation of return. But it's just a happy byproduct of shared wealth. Yeah. Then I think that that cements society together. Yeah, it does. It's, it's a thing of beauty. And I'm very, very happy to have that social currency that fish becomes. Yeah. And fish obviously was, was, is, a, is a, a majority of gift that you that share with people. But also I'm, I've been the happy receiver of your delicious vegetables as well. Which are, I mean, I've seen all the ribbons in your home. Mm, Tell yeah. me a little bit about the, the, the you kind of, you know, the quest. Because that must have been an ambition in some capacity. Well, I guess you explained it with Karen's business and the fact that the main goal was creating, the, using the best possible ingredients to make the best food. Mm -hmm. But then another side of that is like just seeing how delicious you can get these vegetables and, and then going to like these vegetable fairs and yeah, yeah destroying your opposition. The, yeah, there's an element of silliness uh, there and uh, it's, it's a little bit of a spirit of competition that you have to allow yourself once in a while. Uh, it's great fun. I mean, it makes visiting the county fair just so much more enjoyable when you have a bunch of entries in there and uh, you get a bunch of blue ribbons and you get evil stares from your co competitors and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and admiration from the uh, normal fair-going clientele. It's, it's fun. It was never really a quest to begin with, but when I started getting uh, the gardening uh, running smoothly and uh, the soil in balance and choosing the right crops, uh, the vegetables became irresistibly beautiful and perfect and when you put them on display and at uh, a competition like a county fair then uh, yeah you get blue ribbons it's fun and that's in Boonville which is not far from here right about yeah it's about 45 minutes away and that's the whole county the, the Boonville County Fair it's called I yeah. didn't realize that it was the whole county that you were competing against yep ah, that's even more impressive than the demonstration of flavor. Yeah, big fish in a taste. small pond, they say. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, well, bravo. Do you think that you'll continue to go back to the Boonville Fair, or is that a phase that you... You know, I have to say that it was such a cooperative e effort between me and my wife. And when we did it together, it was like a reinforcement of joy between the two of us. And I have to admit that now that I'm alone and Karen has passed away, the, the perspective of working together f for the same cause is no longer there. Uh, now I'm working for Project Me. It used to be Project Us. Yeah. From both our efforts. 
And Project Me is just not very interesting. <laughs> by comparison. Yeah. I think giving is like the most important part of what I do now. Because it maintains my, uh, my, my thread in the fabric of social life in, a, in another way than just friendship. It, it knits me together much more closely with the larger community. And uh, this thing about like taking things to the Bunnell Fair doesn't have quite the appeal anymore. Mm. It's one of the things that goes by the wayside in these kind of life-changing events. And I think it's good, uh, you know, uh, let some other people have a go, go at it. Yeah, have those experiences. Instead of going in there and stealing the thunder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That makes, it does make absolute sense. But I think it's, uh, this is another part of your personality that I've observed over, over the last few years as well, is that you are... It's, it's a really important thing to you to like share skills and knowledge and give that knowledge to people. Not only are you giving fish and vegetables to people, but you're giving information of things that you've learned over the last, you know, however many 30-something years since, since the 80s. And that's something I'm very appreciative of. So thank you for sharing with me and sharing for, with people who are able to listen to this podcast. But it isn't necessarily over now. I mean, we've, we've talked through your story and the whole, you know, process of becoming the man you are today. But you're also going to give us more information in some future podcasts, I'm excited to say, talking through more specific details of the things that you've learned through your uh, friendships with people who are skilled, through your own mistakes, <laughs> as the best way to learn is. So yeah, I'm excited to say we're going to talk more and we're going to talk about how to really focus in on creating fantastic, well, like a successful homestead, you know, how to fish properly, how to create great vegetables and all those kinds of things which you have so much knowledge in. So if it's okay with you, then it would be great to continue to tap into that knowledge. It would be my pleasure. Well, thank you again. And thanks for coming back on the show. It's, uh, yeah, it's been fantastic hearing your stories. And yeah, I hope to be back soon and hear more. Yeah, yeah. that's good. I'm all in. And so now uh, we are going to uh, wrap up uh, this conversation, which gives us a chance to like eat some more. Because I have here still pork. Okay, pork. Which uh, came from a friend. Uh, the pig was raised uh, by uh, a friend of mine. Uh, I have here smoked a black cod, which is something I rarely do, but uh, this is, a, I, I look forward, it's going to be a first taste test for that. <laughs> okay. Um, and I have dessert, which is from the garden. Dessert as well. Yes, indeed. Oh, fantastic. So. That is the end of Isla's story for now. I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did. Thanks again to Isla for sharing so much of his time. That man has stories for days. If you enjoyed this adventure, 
please feel free to share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for listening and until next time.